environmental, social and governance factors are swiftly gaining importance in emerging markets. Although the challenges may be different than in developed markets, one thing is certain. Emerging markets offer an interesting opportunity to active managers who can add value by identifying countries, sectors and companies with good and improving ESG. My name is Marije Groen and in this podcast series of three, I talk with David Chatterjee and Laura Ranson about the importance of ESG in emerging market equities. Laura and David both work as investment manager equities at Pictet Asset Management. In the first episode of this series, we looked at how the view of Pictet Asset Management on country-level performance on environmental, social and governance metrics potentially leads to better investment decisions. In the second episode, we explored what drives ESG performance in sectors in emerging markets. And today, in this third and final episode, we'll talk about the diverse array of ESG challenges that exist in emerging markets and the critical role of engagement with emerging markets companies. Laura and David, welcome. Great to have you. Hi, great pleasure to be here. Thank you, it's our pleasure. Thank you for having us. David, let's get straight into it. Uh, Would you say that engagement can make a difference in emerging markets? It certainly can, um, but I would say there's a a wide variation in potential outcomes as to how successful it can be. So I'm thinking, for instance, of a mining operator that we spent basically the whole of last year trying to engage with, um, repeatedly trying to get in touch with them, get get email responses from them, arrange meetings with them. They basically blanked us for a full 12 months. And in the end, we had to uh, divest our position and and just step away from it. This was following, you know, there was the terrible uh, mining uh, dam disaster in in Brumaginio two years back that ended up uh, 270 people died. It's become even more important since then to keep track of the kind of facilities that... um, uh, these companies have, uh, whether they're in good condition, what they're doing to mitigate the risks. Uh, these guys were just not responding at all. And it was a state-owned business. Um, it could be that they thought they were answerable to the ministry and not to minorities investors, so it's a governance issue. Um, maybe also, even more concerningly, it was more of a, a, a broader fear of, of, of uh, local media and local communities learning that their assets were insecure or that they didn't even know... Uh, how secure their facilities were, which could obviously mean that the risks were significantly higher. So we just had to step away from that position. But to give you an example, at at the other end of the scale, um, there was a Russian bank six months ago that um, announced a potential merger, strategically a great fit. Management were very excited, uh, but the price of the deal was just completely wrong for us. Uh, We protested very strongly. Other minorities protested very strongly. There was three, three weeks of chaos, and eventually they pulled out of the deal. So that was a good win. Um, but more importantly, in the following six months since then, they've they brought in a series of significant governance reforms, uh, significantly strengthened the board with, with some uh, major independent in, uh, directors appointed, and especially the majority shareholder who had super voting rights, a special class of shares, they voluntarily converted all their shares into ordinary stock in line with all the rest of us. Uh, the share price moved 20% over the, like, the following two days, uh, and over the course of the last six months, it's trebled, not just because of these governance changes, the reaction to the engagement, um, the business is doing great as well, but that definitely played a part in it. So you can have a, a, a polar opposite range of spectrum of responses. Uh, Laura, would you say that ESG impacts the long-term returns in emerging markets? 
Yeah, so you know, we believe that ultimately over you know, very long periods of time, the companies that are acting in the most sustainable and responsible way will be those companies that can outperform. Uh, you know, whether that be if they can attract um, the most qualified employees to their business or attract the most loyal customers. Uh, you know, we do believe that those acting in a responsible manner to all stakeholders uh, will have longer term um, you know, successes over those that aren't. And it will also help you know, deepen their competitive moats and strengthen their competitive position. So yeah, in short, we do. Um, whether that plays out over the, kind of the medium term, we'll see. But we do believe that you know, the very long term, those companies that are considering all stakeholders will be the ones that succeed. And David, how do you look at ESG impact on long-term returns? Well, I mean, so think to, if we think of some examples about that, um, I mean, obviously the longest-term cycle will be the, uh, the the fossil fuel issue or, or, or the species extinction issues, which are going to play out not only over hundreds of years, but maybe hundreds of thousands of years with vast implications for the economy and for capital markets. Uh, but to give you a, a slightly shorter-term uh, issue, if you think back to the global financial crisis of 2008, ahead of the crisis, uh, countries in Central Europe were booming, exports were strong, currencies were strong, people were borrowing in, in foreign currency because the interest rates were lower and, and the, the currencies were moving in their favour, so the value of the debt was decreasing. So you had a big boom in Swiss franc or in euro mortgages in central, several countries in Central Europe. And obviously post-crisis, that became a giant social issue because the debt was moving in the wrong direction. Um, so, for instance, in Hungary, you saw six or eight years ago a big cleanup, very expensive. The banks had to make good all the stress that the borrowers were under. Uh, the Polish banks put this off, still haven't fixed the problem. They're now finally grappling with it this year. Uh, but so, so this big social overhang for the banks running for like a decade has made a big difference to returns in that part of the world. So the, the, the Hungarian sector has outperformed the Polish sector by two to three times. Uh, there's, there are other reasons as well. There's governance issues. The Polish government is, is being much more hands-on in terms of churning managements in the Polish banks. But that's, you know, that's also an ESG factor that's playing out over several years. So uh, these, can, these can be issues that run and run for, for long periods of time, for sure. And, and we talked uh, engagement already earlier, uh, David, but is this a situation where engagement can also play a role? In this particular case, I mean, you would certainly like to think so. I, I sound many investors have been raising these issues with management for, for, for the Polish banking sector over, over, over many years. Uh, in this case, no, because their commercial incentives worked against uh, fixing the problem. They thought it would be better to put off the problem for as long as possible. So actually now they're looking to settle with their borrowers because of, not because of us, I have to say, because of their actually... Uh, court judgments from the European Court of Justice that have tilted the balance of risk in the Polish court system. Uh, so the lesson there for management is, I mean, given that uh, they are eventually having to pay large amounts of money to deal with this, so they could have dealt with this years ago. So uh, maybe for them, they will learn from this that the ESG framework will help them get to this point a little faster. And maybe next time they'll listen to us a little earlier, but we'll have to see. Exactly. Uh, Laura, do ESG issues directly influence in which companies you invest? Yeah, definitely. But it's it's a part of the process. So you know, we look at ESG throughout every stage of our investment process. So even from the very initial stages of research, we will be looking at these ESG factors, um, you know, and we... We will look at everything from, 
you know, the governance of the company, how that compares to peers, what it compares to like the other companies we own in the portfolio, obviously all the social side. And we really try and drill down as to what factors are the most important for that particular company in that particular sector. Uh, so we're not just looking at generic ESG considerations. We're really trying to get down to the crux of what's the most important for these companies. Um, so at that very kind of initial stages, we're already highlighting those issues. But, you know, ultimately, when we do initiate a position in a company, we will, it, it's, you know, it's a part of the jigsaw puzzle. It's not the only part. And so we have to look at the risk rewards, um, you know, based on other factors as well. So the valuation, the cash flow drivers, etc. But ESG is always there. And, you know, we're always, when we review companies, if the stock price is, say, underperformed, we will have a, a new updated review of, of those key concerns that we are looking out for and that we identify. And it also helps really frame the discussions with management as well, because when we f first meet the management teams of the companies that we're researching, uh, you know, it's a very good way to really drill down to what's what's important to us and um, for our investment process and what factors we want to start engaging with them with, you know, right at the very beginning stages. Right. And, and how's that for you, David? Anything to add? Well, so to give you a, 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 a fairly live example, Turkey is going through one of its periodic economic crises. Uh, we're, we've been looking at opportunities in that space. Uh, the, the state, I'm giving you another bank example because that's a sector that I spend a lot of time on, but the, the state banks in Turkey are crazy cheap nowadays. They're on 0.2 times book. Uh, they're under three times earnings. But we would consider them uninvestable from an ESG point of view. They used to be really strong businesses, very profitable, conservatively managed. But over the course of the last decade, the government has become much more hands-on and they've become a tool of government stimulus policy for the economy. Governance has become much worse. Return on equity has crashed. Uh, they, they've, at times, they lend very aggressively, which is a potential social issue if they're lending inappropriately. I mean, there's even now sanctions risk with some of these companies with dealings with Iran. So as cheap as they are, we would just like completely rule them out and we would look at more, not more, they're still very cheap, but not, less cheap stocks in the private sector space in Turkey. Right. Laura, I can imagine that in, a more, uh, in emerging markets, we see relatively more family-owned businesses. Does that pose a problem at all? No, we we don't think so. But again, it's weighing up that that risk reward. Um, you know, there have been many studies over the years that have looked at the returns of family and businesses versus those that aren't. And there are some indications to suggest that those that are you know, family controlled do have um, outperformance, in, in particular in terms of revenue growth over their peers. I mean, that's not to say that every company that's the same. But just to give an example, I mean, we do own a um, a Chinese pharmaceutical con company that's uh, 50%, just under 50% owned by the family. And that's proven that actually over time, the family controlled uh, business that, you know, it has, it has had some positive impacts. So for example, the strategic direction of the business has been passed down through the generations, which has made the strategic goal of the company a lot more um, straightforward and a lot more smooth. It's also nurtured a very strong culture within the firm. So there are there are many positive things about family-owned businesses. Obviously, we have to, when we look at those companies, we have to be aware as minority owners, um, you know, what are power is in terms of you know, voting power. Um, so we're constantly weighing up the risk reward um, when we do look at family owned businesses. 
But if it's more positively skewed, then, uh, you know, we are, we do and we are willing to invest in those family and businesses as long as we believe that their goals are aligned with ours. Great. Uh, uh, David, maybe you could give us another one of your examples of a family-owned business that you've been dealing with? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are definitely, uh, I, I could give you negative examples. There definitely are family-owned businesses where, you know, maybe in the, in the real estate space is a, is a notorious one where there could be related party transactions or maybe the next generation isn't up to the job. But there are examples in, uh, in the Philippines or India or Brazil where, where family businesses provide the right sort of long-term strategic ownership of, of, of assets. So as part of our work on Turkey, we spoke to one of the major Turkish family-owned industrial groups a couple, just a couple of weeks back now. They've been a very solid uh, conservative management for three generations in what is a challenging economy. Now they're undergoing a big uh, governance upgrade driven by an ESG outlook. They're separating ownership and management for the next generation, setting sustainability targets out as far as 2050. So that's, that's definitely an example where families will think even longer term, potentially, than minority investors to, to everybody's benefit. Super interesting, yeah. Uh, Laura, we see a lot of recent uh, volatility in the Chinese technology uh, giants. Uh, do you think that it shows that emerging markets might sometimes be too risky or maybe too politicized to invest in? No, I mean, the, the Chinese internet economy has um, you know, had about a decade worth of, of outsized growth and performance. And the companies have been able to operate with very little regulatory oversight for those for those past uh, 10 or so years. And, you know, the recent media we've seen, it's been very harsh. You know, there's a very famous uh, Chinese entrepreneur who's been under attack um, by the government, by the media. And so it has seemed that the government has very quickly and harshly clamped down on the internet economy. But when you take a step back and you look at it, it's, it's not quite the full picture. You know, the internet economy has become a huge part of the Chinese economy. So it's it's only normal that the governments will want to incorporate a, a more fairer framework for operating and competing and a more sustainable regulatory framework. And, you know, this really helps to protect, um, it helps protect users, it helps to protect the smaller enterprises, it helps foster innovation. So all of these things are actually making, we believe, making the industry actually, you know, more sustainable and that the growth going forward will be, um, you know, uh, much fairer and um, will benefit more people within the kind of stakeholder ecosystem. So although it, it does seem as though the media has been, um, or the, the government have been very harsh, it's very similar to what they've done in other industries. If we look at the shadow banking industry, um, you know, it's very similar to what happened there and, and it has created just a fairer competitive environment. So you know, we have actually taken the opportunity to add some positions where we believe that the negative media around, um, you know, these, these ESG issues um, have have harshly impacted the companies way beyond the reality. So, you know, we, we do constantly, as we say, you know, weigh up the, the pros and cons and actually try and look at what's the actual impact to the company. And if it means that they will grow in a more sustainable manner going forward, that's actually better for us as shareholders and, and for the stakeholders. Mm. And, and to Laura's point, David, would you say that ESG standards are generally improving in emerging markets? They definitely are. I mean, you'd expect me to say that, but um, th as, as we've discussed, they're not 
improving across the board, but if you look back, I've been with this team now for more than 20 years. And 20 years ago, if you went to any of these managements with these kinds of set of questions, you would get some pretty flimsy responses. But nowadays, uh, many of them are very keen not just to listen to us, but to, to, to ask us for feedback on changes in governance or in setting suitable management targets. I must get an email at least every couple of weeks from one of our holdings with a survey asking, asking investors for a more organized response. So yeah, for sure. It's nowadays, uh, you're in meetings and the companies will launch a new ESG initiative and you can tell management is bouncing to have got this off the ground, things that they're allowed to talk about that maybe weren't considered quite polite topics of conversation a few years back. More data is available, there's more explicit management targets. It definitely is moving. And the conversation is changing for sure. I see you nodding, Laura. Is there anything you, you wish to add? Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, I completely agree with David. And and just to another point, a lot of IPOs that we're seeing who are, you know, companies coming to market now, they're coming with a full ESG overview of the company. And a lot of companies are incorporating ESG um, targets within their remuneration. So it's definitely is changing. And if these newer companies are coming to market um you know, with them, I think other companies will look at those those newer companies who are more, you know, selling themselves to be more aligned with shareholders and we'll see that and hopefully that will just kind of help up the standards. Um, and I would say that the, the stock exchanges as well, they do have a very big part to play in terms of ESG disclosure. I mean, at the moment, obviously, we look across emerging markets. So the ESG requirements, say, on the NASDAQ are very different to those on the um, Indian stock exchange, etc. So, you know, we hope that over time, the disclosures will be more uniformed across the exchanges, which will really help us to also assess companies across peer groups. Because, you know, you're looking at one company who may disclose some things, you're looking at another in the same sector in a different region, who may disclose other indications. So it's very hard to kind of look across the peer group to to compare companies and to see who is best in class. So hopefully over time, you know, with more um, ESG disclosures that are required by the stock exchanges will make our job a little easier in, in terms of assessing these companies and seeing who is who is outperforming on, on that front. Yeah. Um, David, we, we're getting at the end of this interview uh, already, but I hear a lot of positive mentions from uh, both of you. Uh, can we conclude that this entire ESG initiative is really making a difference? Well, in one sense, I want to say no, because any long-term investor in companies in these potentially very volatile or risky parts of the world has always had to prioritize sustainability. So it's always been a part of what we do. Um, but so the ESG framework has given a way of organizing or framing things that we've always done. But it's, 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 so, but it's not just the effect it's had on us as a team. It's, it's given a, a common language for, for investors and for companies to help normalize and make mainstream a lot of this work. And that is, that's, for me, that's the real change. You know, if you're supposed to be focusing on the, on the quarterly numbers or the annual guidance, and, uh, and it's just about the, finan the short-term financial uh, outlook. Uh, ESG gives everyone permission, in a sense, to talk about broader issues and longer-term issues. Uh, which are just as important or more important uh, over time. But uh, management sometimes were, were uh, you know, afraid to discuss investment that they would have to make or costs that they were going to have to bear that would improve long-term profitability, but in the short run might hit earnings. So that's, this, this is a way to, to get at these really important issues. It's actually been really interesting. Soci I'm not a sociologist, but this transition that suddenly everyone is now, not suddenly, but over the course of a small number of years, 
everyone is now flipped to taking these things much more seriously. It's actually quite cool. Um, the momentum is really there, right? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And look, if you if the, the the standards are definitely not at the same level in emerging markets as developed markets, and if you want to invest uh, as an investor or an allocator, you think that this is this is the level of, of of ESG standard that you're willing to tolerate. I can't say that you're wrong necessarily to say that emerging markets are not for you, but if you do want to invest in a way that that, that contributes to lifting up those standards, ESG is now a a constant subject of debate with corporates in this part of the world, and the commitment is real and we see it impacting returns. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Laura. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You listened to a podcast about what drives the ESG performance of emerging market companies. I would like to thank today's guests, David Chatterjee and Laura Ranson, for their time and their insights. You'll find the two previous episodes in this series on the Fonts News website fontsnews.nl forward slash podcast. This podcast was offered to you by Pictay Asset Management. This marketing material is for professional investors only. It is prepared by Pictay Asset Management Europe SA. Address, Herengracht 456, 1017 CA Amsterdam. However, it is not intended for distribution to any person or entity who is a citizen or resident of any locality, state, country or other jurisdiction where such distribution, publication, or use would be contrary to law or regulation. Information used in the preparation of this document is based upon sources believed to be reliable, but no representation or warranty is given as to the accuracy or completeness of those sources. Any opinion, estimate or forecast may be changed at any time without prior warning. Investors should read the prospectus or offering memorandum before investing in any Pictay managed funds. Tax treatment depends on the individual circumstances of each investor and may be subject to change in the future. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. All forms of investment involve risk. The value of investments and the income from them can fall as well as rise and is not guaranteed. You may not get back the amount originally invested. For information about personal data protection, please refer to the Pictay Group's privacy notice, available on our website, am.pictay. <laughs>